Imagine, demand and build a world transformed. Hi everyone, okay, I think we're gonna get started. Uh, welcome to TWT 2020 and to this talk, COVID and the future of work. Uh, what have we learned and where do we go from here? My name is Will Strong and I've got the pleasure to be moderating tonight's session and saying a few words beforehand. Uh, I'm the Director of Research at Autonomy, a think tank all about the future of work. Um, just before I introduce the session and the speakers, I have a few announcements, some TWT kind of house rules. Firstly, to make the session more accessible, we'll be using a live transcription service called Otter. Attendees using Otter will have to follow a link and open the transcript with a separate window. The link will be shared in the chat box by a tech volunteer. If you're having difficulties, please message the tech volunteer on the chat. Secondly, as many of you are aware, TWT is free for all, but it's only made possible by the contributions of our supporters. So if you're able to, please consider supporting us at theworldtransform.org forward slash support to help us sustain our work all year round. And lastly, a few chat principles. We want everyone to feel welcome in these spaces and for everyone's voices to be heard. So please bear this in mind when engaging with chat. Please don't use an inappropriate, rude or unkind language and please don't spam. Participants who stray from these principles may be prevented from further posting in the chat or comment box, but hopefully this won't happen. If you do have a question or comment from one of our speakers, please do fire away so we can include them in the Q&A towards the, towards the end. Now, onto the session. Uh, the panelists will speak for about 10 minutes. I'm going to try and keep them to time. Uh, there'll be a Q&A at the end, about 30 minutes or so. I'll try and make sure there's enough time for that as possible. Um, I'll select questions at the end and we'll try and have those questions highlighted on the screen. Uh, at the end of the session, you'll have the opportunity to listen to a short radio play called Food Bank by the playwright Laura Bay, just to mix things up a bit. Okay, so I'm going to introduce our panelists when they start to speak. Um, but before that, it's my other duty in the session to give a bit of a snapshot of the world of work in the UK before and during this COVID crisis. So coming into the crisis, the UK had uh, kind of historically low unemployment rates. You know, most commentators were shouting about this, you know, 4% unemployment, very low. Um, but this actually masked a lot of underemployment, so a lot of precarious work. About one million uh, zero-hours contracts existed before the uh, before the crisis hit. Uh, about five million workers uh, were, can be counted as precarious, whether that's short-term contracts, uh, low pay, uh, uncertainty of hours, and so on. So actually, the situation in the UK was, was already bad going into this crisis. I think 30 years of neoliberalism, you know, compounded by 10 years of austerity, it really uh, left us unequipped for, for the shock to the system that COVID um, kind of gave us. Um, even in February 2020, this year, um, you know, there was there was historically low unemployment, but this was distributed unevenly across the country. So, you know, some of our research we were doing at Autonomy showed that basically in places like Blackpool and other northern regions and Birmingham, unemployment was still around 7%. They'd never really recovered from the 2008 crisis. Of course, when lockdown hit mid-March, this situation got much worse and those regional inequalities were exacerbated. Everywhere around the country saw a huge spike in uh, unemployment claims, so claim benefit claims made at job centres. But those places like Blackpool, uh, northern regions and inner in city parts of London were reaching 8 to 12 percent unemployment. So this COVID crisis landed right in a, uh, an awful um, uh, labour market as it was, but made it much, much worse. When it comes to welfare, I think we're all very aware of how bad uh, and how how just how withered our welfare system was coming into the crisis. I, Daniel Blake, of course, by Ken Loach being the film that presented that uh, uh, most um, coherently. The austerity period and the, the neoliberal era basically 
successfully turned the welfare state from a safety net into a weapon against uh, those workers out of work looking for jobs, a kind of a stick to beat people over the head with to take any job uh, in, a, in, a, in a kind of unsatisfactory labor market. When it comes to health and social care, coming into the crisis, 35% of care workers were on zero-hour contracts, one of the industries with the highest proportion of workers on such contracts. Um, the average care worker was paid below the poverty line, so that's below two-thirds of the median wage. And of course, these sectors, health and social care, were hit hardest by the crisis, not in, only in terms of uh, the stress they were put under as workers, but also in terms of the health risks involved. So care workers were amongst, uh, it was the occupation uh, with the highest amount of, of COVID-related deaths. And finally, before I move on to our speakers, we should also acknowledge the uh, revelations around key work and essential work. So teachers, cleaners, nurses, uh, transport workers, even delivery riders, these all these professions and occupations often paid uh, the lowest amounts, valued the least in our society, soon became very obvious that if you have to stay at home, you have a health condition and so on, these occupations uh, we, we value socially the most. So with that in mind, that's the kind of context we've come, kind of that's a whistle-stop tour of the context that we uh, find ourselves in. I'm going to introduce our panelists. We're going to start with Alice Martin. Alice is an expert in labour issues at PERC uh, and is also an advisory board member of Autonomy, which I'm pleased to, very pleased about. Alice will be speaking about businesses and what they've been up to during COVID and we'll reflect on what this means uh, going forward. Alice, over to you. Hiya, thanks Will. Um, so yeah, as Will said, I work for a shareholder advisory firm called Perk. Um, so we represent investors with trillions of pounds worth of combined shares. And these shares are in some of the biggest companies operating in the UK, many of which you'll know, you know, the big supermarkets, um, online retailers, JD Sports, Boohoo, um, ASOS, but also um, a lots, of, lots of companies that you'll never have heard of. So I'll be talking about some of those um, in my in my session now um so the the job that i've been doing day to day involves actually having meetings online meetings obviously at the moment with company secretaries executives and in some cases the ceos of these these major firms and i'm a labor specialist so i focus on how the workers are faring in these companies and as you can imagine since the onset of the pandemic um the focus hasn't just been on on things like paying conditions and and um, working rights around around paying conditions, but actually on very kind of blatantly whether those workers are contracting COVID at work. Um, and in some cases, we're having to have conversations about why um, why there have been significant fatalities in, in these workplaces. Um, and not all of this information is in the public realm because we are representing the investors of these companies. We do get kind of special access to, to speak to the companies um, and part of our job is to push more of this out um, into the public realm and to, and to kind of scrutinise companies on, on behalf of shareholders but um, increasingly also working with trade unions to do that stuff. Um, so I'm going to talk briefly about um, three examples. I'm going to look at three sectors which I think tell us something um, different about what's going on in the world of work under COVID. They're all low paid sectors um, because I thought that's probably what the, you know the most important area for us to focus on but maybe we can have a broader discussion um, later on with the other speakers about the, the world of work more holistically um, but I'll, I'll focus on three low paid sectors so food processing, um, care which we'll touched on and hospitality. Um, so in food processing under COVID-19 we've seen that the kind of continued functioning of the economy has been necessitating certain people to take huge risks to their own health, um, to their life in some cases, just to go into work and, and just to keep the, the kind of um, the economic 
cogs turning and, and to keep food on the tables for the rest of society. So food processing is, is the best example, um, I think, because it's it's a huge sector. There are over 400,000 workers in food processing in the UK. It's actually the UK's largest manufacturing sector. But we don't really think about it when we think about manufacturing on the whole. Um, we've actually never probably heard of most of the companies or most people won't have heard of the companies operating there, the likes of Bacavore, Boparan, Two Sisters, Cranswick. And these are the companies with you know, tens of, well, yeah, thousands of, of employees each, and they're supplying our, our major supermarkets. Um, Yorkshire and the Humber and the Northwest are the two regions that have the most food workers. So each region has over 40,000 workers. There's lots of women in food manufacturing. So half of the lowest paid quartile of food workers are, are, are women workers. Um, the workforce receive a lower than average pay than other manufacturing jobs. There's really low levels of automation because uh, these companies have worked out that it's cheaper to pay people to do the work and to essentially work work a bit like robots. Um, it's cheaper to do that than, than to invest in, in the machinery. Um, and agency work in the sector is really common. So a lot of the workforce will just be coming in for you know one week at a time and then maybe going to a different site of work. A quarter of the workforce are EU migrants. And I wanted to give you that context um, because I think it kind of sets the scene for why there have been such serious COVID outbreaks in food processing um, during the pandemic. And you'll have probably all seen stories about, about the outbreaks in, in different factories, particularly in meat production. And you'll have definitely heard about this happening over in the States where there have been over 100 um, deaths. And this is just on record, 100 deaths in, in meat processing so far. Um, but it's it's likely to be much, much more. Um, and I thought I'd just give you a few, I'd let you know a few things that I'm hearing from, from these food workers um, to just paint a bit of a picture of, of what the job's like during, during COVID. Um, so I've spoken to people who are aware that there've been really, you know, major outbreaks in their workplace. So um, over a hundred people have, have contracted COVID on the same day in, in a particular plant, but their employer is telling the other staff that they still need to come in. They're not letting them know about the extent of the outbreak because they don't want more absences because they're so scared of, of staff shortages. Um, and they really want to keep the production speeds up. Um, and on a call with a, a major meat producer, a couple of weeks ago, I asked them why they couldn't slow down the line speeds so that people can actually socially distance um, because people are actually standing shoulder to shoulder still in this in this line of work because it's essential work. The same social distancing rules don't apply. And I asked him, what, you know, why don't you slow down the line speeds um, to enable people to, to work a bit more safely? And he told me that um, one of the reasons they won't do that is because it will cause animal welfare issues um, because they are slaughtering thousands of pigs every single day. And slowing down the lines will mean that some of those pigs are caged for longer. Uh, I thought that was just a really grim um, I suppose, insight into the way some of these these companies are 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 operating, playing off animal welfare with, with workers' rights. Um, I've also heard from, from food workers that they've been asked to wear like cake boxes as, as face masks in work and basically to improvise, to, to create their own PPE in the early stages of, of the crisis. Um, and we now know that there are thousands of, of COVID cases among food workers in the UK. But on the whole, companies are um, logging these as community transmission cases or cases in the community. So they're not taking responsibility for the possibility that those cases were contracted in the workplace. Um, and this is an area that, that we're kind of um, really pushing on at Perk because we don't think it's right that companies aren't publicly reporting on the cases and the fatalities in their workplace. 
Um, the second sector is care. Um, and as we know, you know, there's tens of thousands of predominantly women working in the sector who've been working throughout the, the crisis, a high portion of migrant workers, a high portion of these workers are black or from other ethnic minorities. Um, and under COVID, the model that we've got in the UK of, of privately run care has massively struggled. Um, and I think it's, a, it's an interesting sector to look at for the way the kind of myth of privatisation um, has really been exposed under COVID. So what we've seen is care homes basically calling on the government, either nationally or calling on local councils, to top up wages and to support them to be able to pay sick pay, proper sick pay to care workers, again, so that they can avoid staff shortages. Um, in Wales, this is now happening. So the government are going to be topping up the sick pay of, of care workers so that they can safely self-isolate. Um, and I think it's, it's yeah, it's, it's an interesting case study, this sector of, of how when when matters get really serious actually it's the state that needs to step in and and support workers and I think in in care in particular because there's so much private equity ownership there you know there are these kind of overseas owners with very opaque and complicated ownership arrangements the workers and, and the unions operating in care homes really don't know who to turn to in in a crisis and they've had to turn to the state um, and the state are having to step in and um, so I think that's something that will potentially be a bit of a watershed moment for care. We all know it was in trouble anyway. We all knew it was in trouble anyway, but I think now COVID's really proven that it's 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 completely dysfunctional. Um, and then the last sector is is hospitality, where there have been mass redundancies. Um, hotels, bars, restaurants heavily used the furlough scheme with hundreds of thousands of workers furloughed. Um, and estimates are that over a third of the people who were furloughed in this sector will probably be made redundant. Many of them already have actually, a lot of this has already taken hold. Um, we've been speaking to companies that have uh, put as much as 90% of their jobs at risk and their plan really, and they've been quite open about this, is to fire and rehire. So fire now because they don't know what's happening kind of demand wise and then just wait for business to pick up and rehire people potentially on on worse terms and conditions um when as and when they need it and I, and the theme I guess I'm trying to draw out there is that there's a whole raft of kind of flexible low paid workers who are treated in a way that they can kind of be picked up and dropped when they're needed um, and I've spoken to um a hotel worker in a, in a major chain in, in Marriott chain actually that um their kind of their story really stuck with me because they were basically being told that they had to come in to do a different job during the crisis so they were they usually worked on reception but they were told they had to come in to help sanitize the hotels ready for reopening so they essentially became cleaner for a night shift um they were on the minimum wage it was a zero hour job and in the same communication they were told that they would probably lose that job from september <laughs> so it was a real example of of this kind of um yeah, this workforce that, that companies feel they can pick up and drop um, as and when they need them. Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll probably just wrap up there. And, and, and it's it's probably worth pointing out that those three sectors have really low levels of unionisation. And you can really tell that um, during this crisis. Uh, yeah, I mean, beyond the kind of legal minimum standards like the living wage, when these workers are entering their ununionized workplace in these sectors, their employer really is calling the shots. So they're deciding what, what happens there. And that's having really grave consequences at the moment.
Thanks, Alice. Yeah, I guess I mean what I draw from your talk in a way is I think it's quite worrying to think about how this crisis is being used as an opportunity to restructure businesses according to you know whatever, however it suits the company and is in these different sectors. Um, in some ways, COVID's opened that car bonnet of of kind of looking at you know, like you know, revealing things in our economy which we perhaps either didn't want to know um, or, or want to see, but actually it's the kind of inner workings of these low paid, uh, high risk roles and how they were just like incredibly unprepared for for kind of a health crisis, partly because they're so packed in and also because they have so few rights at work. So I think that's really important to note. Um, I think I think we let's keep going. I think maybe we can have we can add more time on the end for questions. Um, Alice was very on time, so that's always I always appreciate that as a chair. Um, so up next we have Ian Taylor, who's a Royal Mail worker and is on the National Executive Committee of the CWU. I should mention that the CWU and Autonomy are co-hosting this event. Um, Autonomy have been working with the C, with CWU for uh, well over a year now. Um, and so we're very proud to be working work with them on this event again. Every year at TWT, we try and uh, run a couple sessions. Um, so we're very happy to have Ian here. He's going to talk to us about um, the experiences of, of, of people, his colleagues at CWU in, in this crisis and also what he's seen in his role. Uh, so I'll hand over to Ian now for another 10 minutes. Do you want me back in? Sorry, Ian, you're on mute. Sorry, mate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, there Apologies. you go. I mean, can you hear me now? Yes. Can you hear me yeah. now? Yeah, yes, yes, you can. Yes, okay. you can. Thank you. Sorry about that. Apologies. <laughs> what I'm going to try and do is probably give a probably a quick whistle stop talk uh, of the impact of the COVID outbreak on the Royal Mail workers uh, and subsequently the challenges it posed for the union. Uh, and probably some of the challenges that will that call will probably continue to um, pose as we as we go forward. Um, some of you may or may not be aware, but COVID arrived for Royal Mail workers and the CWU uh, smack bang in the middle of a dispute uh, we were having with the employer over uh, a variety of issues. Not not least of all, what role, role the union was going to play going forward. In, in the transformation of the business. Uh, and we had just received an overwhelming yes vote for industrial action uh, following a huge campaign. So we had a bit of a dilemma uh, at the outbreak of COVID. Uh, do we call industrial action uh, during what was clearly uh, a bit of a national crisis and run the risk of uh, facing the wrath of public opinion? Or did we, we cancel any proposed action and and in doing so, probably face face the wrath of our our members who had overwhelmingly supported the union, uh, and did our people continue to provide a service during the pandemic? So we 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 had a bit of a dilemma. So it it, it didn't come at the right time for anybody, but, but but least of all for the communication workers union and and their members. So what we did eventually decide, and and, and rightly in our view. Uh, was that we couldn't, in all conscience, continue to announce industrial action, uh, but to position our people as key workers, as we've always seen them during the pandemic. Uh, unfortunately, uh, this wasn't universally supported by by the members. The overwhelming majority did see as and did see the logic of that position. Uh, and unfortunately, again, the, the, the minority of detractors were encouraged by the, the lack of PPE in the early stages. Um, 
the lack of preparedness and response from both the business and and the biz and and the government in the beginning was was really problematic for a number of workers who were understandably very worried and very nervous. Uh, and it was during this time we, on a number of occasions, we we had to make it very clear to to the business who by now had bought into the key worker status, probably more for financial reasons than anything else, uh, that our members were only going to continue to provide the safe service if it, if, it, if it was safe to do so. And also ensuring social distancing in the workplace was also proving extremely difficult. Uh, and if the truth be known, a large proportion of management who now see the continuation of the service as, as a bit of a, a, a financial benefit rather than anything else, uh, we're paying lip service to, to it. Uh, eventually, uh, we managed to convince them that uh, there needed to be uh, uh, improved conditions in terms of social distancing. And eventually, uh, as for everybody, the PPE provision improved. Uh, and so uh, what this did was it ensured the, the apostles achieve key worker status. And what it did, it kept our members, what we believe did, kept our members in good shape with, with public opinion. Uh, and I believe as a consequence, the public opinion in terms of our postal workers was, was at an all-time high. Uh, it also enabled us to, to uh, cement our position as key workers by achieving some uh, new contracts, including um, receiving and collecting COVID tests from home addresses uh, and a number of, of priority, priority boxes. What we did see during this time, because people were at home, was a massive increase in parcel traffic and, uh, and a huge increase in, in, in internet shopping. Unfortunately, this was taking place against the, the decline in, in letter traffic, uh, which poses some real challenges for the business finances going forward. The, the growth in parcels is significant, but the competition is fierce in this area. Uh, and, and where we compete with some pretty poor employment practices in terms of our competitors, zero-hour contracts and some of that other gig economy features. So uh, what we're seeing is the business is already beginning to, to make overtures about reducing numbers of employees and terms and conditions and citing COVID as, as, as the reason for this. Therefore, COVID does remain a, a huge challenge going forward uh, as the need for social distancing hinders the business, push for increased, increased profitability. Um, and I think uh, as long as it remains, the increase for push and increased mechanisation will, will, will also increase. So as far as we're concerned, uh, we believe we're only just at the, the, the beginning in terms of the, the COVID impact. What we've seen during COVID for some of our workers uh, was... Um, that amongst them were a number of vulnerable people, uh, which meant that we had a lot of people who were off work uh, uh, and reported sick absence, in, sick absence 
uh, and we're having to stay away from the workplace for one for one reason or another. The business's response initially was 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 very understanding, but as things progressed, you 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 could see that pressure was now beginning to be applied on workers to to return to work as soon as is possible. Consequently, we did see a a number of outbreaks in 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 a number of sites uh, where social distancing wasn't wasn't particularly being being adhered to and in many of the sites it was quite difficult for it to, to, to be adhered to anyway so what we, we we ended up doing was we had to intervene again with the employer uh, and continue to press very hard for them to maintain uh, the utmost standards in terms of, of social distancing what we think uh, is going to remain some significant challenges going forward is the requirement for social distancing to, to be maintained going forward. Um, that is placing huge pressure on, on the employer in terms of shared vans where individuals normally two to a van, uh, some of the, the workplaces which can't hold all the employees at any single time, which is requiring people to, to have staggered starts and staggered attendances and a whole raft of new 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 ways of working what we believe uh, the business's response to this will be is to reduce the service they've already made overtures about reducing the service uh, made overtures about impending redundancies uh, and so covid is is providing cover in our view again for some of those in in the business that would like to see um, reductions in the workforce and ever-increasing mechanisation at the expense of workers. COVID is providing that cover. So we believe there's lots of work to be done uh, going forward um, and that if we're going to avoid some of the worst excesses, managerial excesses, uh, that would normally come to bear as a consequence of COVID, we're going to have to remain extreme, extremely vigilant. So that's a little whistle-stop tour of where we've been, where 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 we are, and possibly uh, the challenges that we have coming uh, going forward. Great, thanks, Ian. Yeah, I think it's th this crisis has definitely shown um, the kind of the importance of trade unions in these struggles. Because as soon as you know something hits the economy. Um, it's up to trade unions to make sure that workers' rights and 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 the standards that they they deserve are, are upheld. And so I think, you know, the the long decline of trade union membership. I mean, it's it's really good to see that last year there's dealt that something bucked that trend. And I'd like to think that this this crisis has really um, shown people the, the the importance of representation in the workplace, um, and of course of essential workers too, such as posties. Um, okay, so we're still on time. We have a few questions, but I'll pose them at the end. Um, Next up, we have Shreya Nanda, who is an economist working in the Centre for Economic Justice at IPPR, and for my money, has produced some of the sharpest analyses of this crisis uh, so far. So I'm really happy to have uh, Shreya with us, and she'll be speaking uh, perhaps on a more positive light, and positive by I mean positing something, not necessarily positive uh, in terms of happy clappy, um, 
what, as in what should we what, you know what, where should we go from here basically we, we kind of acknowledge the crisis we've acknowledged the kind of the hit to our to our economy and to our perhaps our workers rights how can we build uh rebuild our economy in a way which kind of resets um uh, the situation such that we can have a more prosperous uh, future one where prosperity is shared out amongst uh, everyone uh, rather than kind of accruing to a, a minority as we had before so i'll leave it with Shreya to take us away on that um, thanks very much, Will. Um, so I, I'm going to talk briefly about some broad historical trends and how the current crisis fits in with those, and then about some potential solutions and some things to think about there. Um, so uh, at the risk of making this a talk about the issue that I'm most interested in, I think you can't talk about the future of work without talking about, you know, the broader issues of, of power in the economy and wealth, the wealth distribution and wealth inequality. Um, so briefly looking at some historical trends and apologies if this is very obvious. Um, so obviously we have um, the rise of social democracy after World War II, which represented a massive fall in, in inequalities of wealth and power and a building up of wealth and power among ordinary people. Um, and then obviously in the 1980s, we had a backlash against that. So the government um, opening up the economy and using the threat of moving production offshore to counter the bargaining power of ordinary people um, and dismantling lots of the um, policies that underpinned the more equal economy we saw before Thatcher. Um, so since then we've seen wealth inequality rising, markets becoming more concentrated, um, home ownership falling, wages stagnating, regional inequality rising. Um, and every time there's been um, a shock or a change of any kind or a destabilization um, in the economy, um, we've seen those trends accelerate. Um, so, for example, the 2008 financial crisis, Brexit, the trend towards automation, and now the coronavirus crisis. Um, and so in terms of what this means for the workforce, um, higher wealth inequality obviously means all the things we don't want to see. It means higher unemployment, worse conditions lower wages, longer hours and less job security. Um, so in terms of how the current crisis fits in, I don't want to speculate because I think there's a lot where we have to wait and see what's going to happen, um, how the government are going to respond going forward. But I think we're, we're already seeing that the crisis is another destabilising shock that's going to help increase wealth inequality. So we're seeing um, obviously businesses facing lower demand, some businesses going under and the ones that are going under first are the smallest ones who are the least able to access credit or those which are already highly over leveraged. Um, and and, the, and the, the trend is now towards like the bigger tech firms, so those are the ones doing best now and those are where ownership is obviously more highly concentrated um, at the individual level as as people have already said, we're seeing the risk that businesses are going to lay off workers and hire them back with lower wages and worse conditions. Um, and yeah, risks of home ownership falling. Um, yeah, basically wealth inequality rising. Um, so we've seen that wealth inequality is increasing and is going to keep increasing unless we do something different about it. Um, so what can we do about it? So I think there's, yeah, there's a range of different ideas on the left from um, basic income and basic services to a jobs guarantee to a four day week that autonomy has done a lot of brilliant work on 
um, to higher taxes and spending, to stronger unions. Um, to me, the most important thing is about the direction of travel, so towards an, a more equal economy with significantly lower wealth inequality. But I think it's worth considering some of the some of the counter arguments that these policies attract from the right. So the classic one for the last 10 or so years has been, how are you going to pay for it? But in my mind, I think this is possibly going to lose some salience now that the current crisis is exposed that the government actually can find the money for things when it when they need to. Um, so I think what may become more salient is the argument that it, you know, if we do all of these things, then companies are just going to move production abroad and we'll be worse off. Um, so I think there are there are three responses that we can make to that. One of them is to say, okay, we're going to have a more closed economy. We're going to say you can only sell to our markets if you um, you know if you have these great working standards and if you contribute to the economy. Um, secondly, we can try and push for change at a global level. So we saw a sort of national rebalancing of power after the Second World War, trying to push for the same thing at a global level. And thirdly, we can say, okay, um, yes, we, we want to have an open economy, so we need to be an attractive environment for business, but this isn't incompatible with having things like great infrastructure, a strong social safety net to ensure that people are able to take risks and innovate, making sure that this is a pleasant place to live and have a family. Um, possibly the approach that countries like Sweden have taken. Um, so I think, I think I wouldn't want, I don't necessarily have an opinion on which of those is the direction that we should go down, especially like it's very difficult in the current context because, um, you know, the Conservatives are using everything to fight a perpetual culture war and we have companies that are now more powerful than most countries. Um, but I think that those are some of the ways that the left should be thinking about these policy debates going forward. So that's my assessment. Great, thanks, Rhea. Um, you mentioned wealth inequality. Would you, how do you feel about a wealth tax? There's been some polling recently by the Tax Justice UK, which seemed to be like that, that effectively there's strong public support for wealth taxes, um, even if perhaps if it's framed in terms of, you know, going after billionaires, it's less popular. But the idea that tackling wealth um, inequality seems to be fairly popular. How do you, I mean, as, as, a, as a policy option, you know, what's your opinion of that? Um, yeah, I think I think that is one really, really effective way of doing what I talked about, of reducing wealth inequality. Uh, but I think you do have to think about how to do it carefully, because, again, there's this concern about how it would interact with the international economy and would would it push things abroad? But I think definitely we should be looking to do more things like that. So I'm correct me if I'm wrong, but I remember I think that like a week ago there was a, there was a really really great IPPR paper on, or at least a call for like for taxing wealth at the same levels that you're taxing income um, or the mm -hmm. same rates. Um, uh, and I thought that that seemed to be one of those kind of almost like you know set in stone. This is probably how our economy should function as going forward. It seems to make no sense to, that people with wealth are, have you know had to pay less tax relatively compared to those who earn money, um, earn their money, let's say. Um, and I guess one final question, not to put you on the spot or anything, just because while I have you here, um, there's obviously during this crisis, and this is not necessarily the topic of this um, session. Um, renters, landlords, housing has become a really acute issue, mainly not only because um, 
uh, people, uh, well, actually, no, I'd say mainly because people were were either being laid off or working less and therefore short on cash. That cash then has to go to the to the renters or their landlords. This became a really important issue. And I think it's, you probably can't disassociate it from the world of work or the future of work. Um, the kind of extractive economy, which takes takes cash out of people's pockets and puts them into landlords or renters or, and so, so on and so forth. I wonder if you could say something about that. Um, there was a lot of discussion about, you know, uh, rent waivers or and so forth, or, or you know, how do we how do we regulate that sector? Um, I wonder if you had any thoughts on that, because I thought that's that's something particularly, that's a real issue for workers at the moment, and I guess the future's uncertain in a way. Yeah, I think that's that's a really key area where we've seen, like where the increase in wealth inequality since Thatcher has been like possibly the most obvious, um, and, it's, and it's really become more salient now because, um, yeah, because you're seeing people being laid off and not being able to afford their rent. And and it's also one of the areas of the economy where I think it's the most obvious where the policy should be different because the houses are all still there. Like, people should be able to live in them. So, I mean, yeah, that like I think you mentioned there's different ways you can deal with that. So, like, rent controls, building more housing. But I think it's very, very obvious that something different should be being done. Mm, mm. Yeah, I think I, I just just I guess my own opinion would be something like, you know, any reform to the labour market um, or reform sh- shouldn't be in isolation. Basically, there needs a whole raft of new measures to kind of make sure the economy is kind of sturdy going forward and also one that works for everyone. Thanks, Ray. Um, so we have we weren't going to have Dan Carden with us, uh, but Dan is yet to join. Hopefully, he'll be able to make it. Uh, in the meantime, I thought maybe we'd go to a. The Q, to kind of a general discussion between um, speakers and then also Q and A, um, I maybe well, to get one to get the conversation started. I'll pick one from the from the audience. There's a question here from uh, Andy, who basically ah, all our speakers are back with us. Fantastic. Um, so Andy asked a question about you know he was shocked by to hear about um, the conditions that workers were working in. I think from Alice's discussion, there it is there. Cake boxes for, for PPE is terrible. What what kind of legal recourse do do workers have, um, Alice? And, and and kind of has there has there been any fights um, against this, and which ones perhaps have been successful? To broaden that question out, maybe. Yeah. So um, I mean, it's a really good point because even outside of a pandemic, the the kind of um, routes for legal recourse are like really weak anyway for workers. Um, so we do have kind of laws in place to say that our employers you know, can't hurt us and, and put our lives at risk at work. However, if they're not enforced well, they don't really mean anything. And the means for enforcement for any laws kind of in the workplace, um, well, it can come from, you can kind of have enforcement from different areas. So one is the state um, and local authorities and the um, health and safety executive, which you might have heard quite a lot about on the news race recently, are the kind of means through which the state can uh, can enforce those, those laws in the workplace. But what we've been seeing during the pandemic is that HSE is just completely overwhelmed. Um, it was, you know, it was struggling even before COVID started. It can't meet the kind of requirements that are needed in terms of actually auditing workplaces and, and physically going and looking at what's going on. And um, there's also Public Health England, which are operating at a very local level as well in local authorities. But what we're finding there is, quite a lot of, um, I don't want to use the word collusion, but it's in my head, so I'm going to say it, collusion between um, some of these health authorities and the employers. And I don't know if it's intentional, but it, it's 
because they're, they're kind of so taken aback by the seriousness of the situation, they don't really have the regulations and the guidelines to tell them what to do. What we're seeing is so many cases of accidents happening work and people, you know, contracting COVID and, and it's being um, labelled as uh, community transmission, as I mentioned earlier, cases in the community. Um, and I really, I think that that term should really stick in people's heads because I think it means a lot more than what it does in that in that kind of um, exact situation where basically what they're arguing is that uh, a worker has COVID, yes, but they must have contracted it, you know, at their mate's house or at the parent's house or at a social gathering they were at. Um, that's what the kind of term means. But I think what it also signals is a kind of um, devolving of responsibility or a denial of responsibility on the part of employers towards their employees and I think they're kind of using COVID in some ways to do this and that's why we're hearing about these you know local lockdowns and the narrative is very much focused on social gatherings or particular characteristics perhaps of that community often with quite racist undertones um, and what we're not hearing about is that down the road there's an employer with 3,000 people on site at any one time um, that has been deemed an essential, a type of essential work like food processing and therefore social distancing doesn't by law have to take place on site. Um, so that, that was a very long way of saying like, yes, there are recourses for, for kind of um, legal action in these cases, but the enforcement is so weak around it that, that it's hard to know if, if any of it will really happen. And, and the other kind of way of enforcing laws that we have in the workplace are obviously trade unions and, and I would argue that they're a much better route to to kind of enforcing our, our rights in work because trade unions by their very nature exist in that workplace and from that workplace and so they are the experts really on what's happening and what's going wrong and we've seen trade union reps and health and safety reps really step up during the crisis and and show themselves for you know the fantastic work that they've been doing to actually keep those those um those workforces safe and I think Ideally, we'd, you know, one good thing coming out of, of this pandemic would be that more employers recognise that that role that that trade unions have in the workforce. Um, yeah, uh, and and then just uh, just another point on the kind of I guess legal recourse. Um, interestingly, in in many of these food factories, there are health and safety kind of tribunal cases that come up all the time. Like we've been looking into the records that that stretch back to before the pandemic, and actually there are. You know, there are accidents at work and, and serious risks um, posed to these workers that, that were happening even before the pandemic. And often they're settled out of court with a, with some kind of payoff. So there's actually no, there's not very much information um, in the public realm about about the, 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 uh, the kind of incidents and accidents that are happening in, in many of these workplaces. And I, I think there's there's a kind of laser focus on it now because of COVID and hopefully that's something that will that will continue um, as we work out the pandemic. Thanks Alice. I think it's an important point you make there um, talking about you know at the moment there seems to be kind of a, a political move to divide workplaces from civil society in terms of you know civil societies are spreading COVID and workplaces are kind of fine you should go to work um, almost bracketing them off from discussion about the COVID spread. Um, but you know that's that kind of suits certain political ends. I think it's important, as you say, to to point out that you know these huge workplaces just right next to 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 the the place of supposed spreads. And I think that's that's a really important point. Um, there's a question for Ian of walkouts. Do you want to pick that one up, Ian? Could you, uh, just give yeah. it on the screen. Mm. Uh, there it is. There. So, were there some walkouts at some centres? I seem to remember that happening. Can't remember the details. Yeah, as as I as I said during my brief contribution early, early on. Uh, in the pandemic, PPE was 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 very scarce, uh, 
and I think it, it, it intertwines with something that, that Alice said there, um, where you do have active trade unions, uh, people do feel able to assert their rights. And, and we were very clear as a trade union during that period where the, the provision of PPE was, was less than ideal, that where, where individuals felt unsafe, uh, they were to remove themselves from that environment. And, and on a number of occasions, uh, members in some units did, did, did exactly that. Um, and, 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 and we wouldn't expect any less. Another thing uh, Alice touched on is, is, is the, the, the role of the, the health and safety reps. You know, we, we, you know we, we affectionately refer to them as, as, as anoraks, but they have been, been worth their weight in gold. Uh, the trade union uh, health and safety representatives we, we have because they are usually far and away uh, better trained, uh, better informed uh, than their business counterparts. So, yeah, I would just endorse that, 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 that idea that where you have strong trade unions, uh, that is way more effective than the weak legal recourse that, that, that we that we currently have, but yeah, there was a number of walkouts, and and they they in each instance they they were supported by by the trade union until the situation was considered safe for them to return. Thank you for clarifying, uh, Ian. So we, there's another question here from Theodora about the role of new trade unions. So IWGB, UVW, Baker's Union, etc., referring to the precariat, other that work, section of the workforce who. Uh, do, do not have secure um, employment um, in various ways and there's a kind of prediction that that will spread and it has been spreading quite um, quite far and wide. I wonder if anyone on the panel has any thoughts around new forms of organising broadly speaking but also how um, you know perhaps broader reflections on precarity and Covid um, whether that's predict predictions or whether that's um, ways of kind of ameliorating it. Anyone want to jump in? Okay. Um, I mean, so, I would. Okay. I look, I'm, I'm very interested in the topic, but I've already spoken. So, does anyone else want to chip in first? If If you want to jump in, Alice, please do. Okay. Um. So, I think there have been really um interesting new forms of organising during the pandemic, and um, because we've all forced been forced to move online, I think it's actually been um a good move for a number of trade unions to kind of uh, shift branch uh, meetings onto WhatsApp or onto Zoom and actually have this kind of virtual meeting place that that was something that um, many unions weren't really um, doing much of before. So I, I think there's been a there's a there's been a good shift towards kind of digital organising. And, and the reason that's important is because even before the pandemic, several workplaces were very hard to access um, for unions, either because it was a very anti-union employee, uh, employer, sorry, um, and there was union busting going on on site and surveillance, et cetera, or because um, just physically, you know, th those sites were very difficult to, to access and to, and to get to and to get into. Um, so I hope that, that, you know, whether it's the kind of smaller insurgent unions like IWGB, UVW, Baker's Union, um, whether it's them or whether it's our, you know, established bigger unions, um, I hope that as a kind of collectively as a movement, there, there is an opportunity here that that unions can build on the great work that they've been doing and really try and access workers in, in sectors that they really haven't made good inroads into so up to now. And, and they're the kind of sectors I was talking about earlier, um, hospitality, care, um, food processing and, and other parts of kind of the kind of low paid food, um, you know, farm to fork kind of process. 
Um, but I think there are also, you know, some really worrying things that are happening in relation to, to, to union organising during the pandemic, for example, where there are mass redundancies going on. Um, if there are trade unions active in those sectors, they are losing members at the same time. And I heard of, uh, you know, a story from the States where one kind of, um, it's kind of an offshoot union that had grown out of an, another larger union, basically lost like a very high percentage, I won't say the figure, but a very high percentage of its members overnight due to redundancies of one particular company that had, you know, uh, hotels and, and businesses across the country. So um, I think there's a there are you know signs of, of fantastic organising going on among unions and, and new members in some areas, but I think in sectors like aviation, uh, some parts of manufacturing that were better unionised, um, you know the, the, the redundancies are meaning that that unions are going to be kind of weaker in, in certain areas. Thanks, Alice. Um, okay, we have a question, another question from Theodore. I thought we might use to open a discussion about welfare. Um, obviously, just as with rent and renting, I don't think you can distinguish or not distinguish, you can't separate out um, working life and life outside of work or the support you might have um, outside of work. Traditionally, the welfare state and out of work support has has basically been used as a kind of stopgap. Um, but with with the trends of automation, potentially um, with you know an aging population and also um, obviously the COVID crisis, we've seen how welfare might be put under strain with more workers churning through work or and out of work, so low pay, no pay cycles, and so on. Shreya, I wonder if you had any thoughts about welfare as a, as a kind of a strong. Um, how do we improve our welfare security, security, um, social security, or our safety net, um, and why is that important today? So the question was really about the question um, was about basic yes. income, but I think I'll, I'll just broaden it out to talk about welfare in general and, and your thoughts. Um, yeah, so I'm I'm quite pro basic income personally. I think it comes to the idea of like the commons, so saying that everyone has a right to some parts of the economy, like natural resources, like new inventions, or like um, yeah, just general production. Um, and that and that there's a rationale for that to be redistributed. I think it's an open question about what level of a UBI would be sort of feasible and desirable. Um, but yeah, I think changes to welfare are really important for the wealth inequality stuff I was talking about. Um, and then, yeah, in terms of how you do it, I think you have to bear in mind what I was um, talking about, about um, uh, managing the relationship between the UK's economy and the economies of other countries but I think in, within that framework it, it would be very feasible to have much stronger social safety net than we have now. Mm, thank you. Um, I mentioned it already, I mentioned automation br briefly but I think there were some signs I think at the start of the crisis uh, companies like Ernst & Young were putting out surveys with business leaders around you know to what extent are you you know, going to be automating processes um, off the back of this crisis now that you've experienced life without certain certain workers or or, or you've experienced the need to have labour when even when labour is withdrawn. So there's some talk about the threat of automation being exacerbated. Alice, did you want to come in here and talk about this a little bit or ask a question? Maybe? Yeah, the question really for um, is for the other two speakers. So, um, well, both of you really, or Ian, from first of all, maybe from the perspective of um, the CWU, how do you feel about the the possibility of more automation, either in your in your line of work, but also just across the economy? Because I know it's something that the CWU've like handled really well up to now, and it's been the kind of basis of their their four day week campaigning, or or you know reduced working week campaigning, and you you secured that that 
that great win to, to reduce hours kind of gradually, hopefully over a number of years um, in response to the increased automation. And it feels like there is this um, this building again of, of kind of pro auto, or a potentially like a potential acceleration of, of the kind of automation plans that companies already had. And we, we've seen it in food processing um, because of the health risk and because of the kind of labour shortages that are happening because of the health risk um, and also because of Brexit, incidentally. Um, companies are now thinking now is the time to take the plunge and like invest in in, in machinery. Um, and I just don't know if we're kind of ready as a, as a as a labour movement to like own that move um, and, and make it a positive thing. But I also, you know, inherently don't feel we should be scared of automation. I think it's better to have machines doing things that um, that they can do better and more safely rather than having workers paid hardly any money to basically act like a machine, which is what we're, we're seeing in food production. And so I, I'm kind of, you know, pro-automation to some respects, but not where it is is kind of a threat to, to jobs. Um, and so, yeah, I guess questions to everyone. How do we feel about it? Is it really going to accelerate? Is there an opportunity to kind of own that process or, or not? Great question. Ian, do you want to jump in? Yeah, um, I think Alice has, has, has pretty much identified our, our approach to it. Aut automation has been something that the Communication Workers Union have, have battled with over, over the years. And I say have battled with it. However, there is a certain amount of inevitability to automation. Um, automation will provide and can provide some more opportunities in our industry. But as 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 has been indicated, our, our views our views are clear. One, it, it needs to bring some benefit to workers as well. It can't merely be there to re replace workers. So, if the trade-off needs to be um, a shorter working week, a better work-life balance, then, then so be it. Um, uh, it can't merely be something that is done at the, the expense of workers. And, and, and there is a distinction we make between um, aut automation and new technology because there are elements of new technology that are there merely to tag workers and to tag workers and what they're doing and to find out what they're doing, pretty much to snoop on workers every minute. Of, of, of every day and, and, and I think it's fair to say we resist that type of technology. What we won't resist is technology that has benefits for the industry, benefits for, for, for the customer and the consumer, but at the same time produces some benefits for the worker, such as a shorter working week and, and a better work life balance. So I, I, I think there is a there is a balance to be to be, to be had. Um, and I think that's what we strive to do, and I, and I think that's the, the challenge going forward for, for, for a lot of trade unions. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Ian. Did you, just a question if you, to go straight back to you, Ian, do you also see this intensification of work, the increased surveillance, the speed up sometimes, does that factor into the, the argument for a shorter working week? Because you mentioned um, uh, like sharing the gains, the productivity gains, and so on. But I would imagine you know, sometimes people make the case that in intensification is is also part of the the kind of d demand that you know you, our work's getting more intense um, because of these machines. Therefore, you know, more time off the job is 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 required, or at least that's that's what we're asking for. Yeah, the the the, the two the two the two issues are, are are interlinked. If if you're if you are going to be asking people to 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 work smarter 
in in keeping with with technology and that that works going they're going to be monitored more so on a more stringent in a more stringent way uh, so more of their day is monitored and the expectations upon them increase well yeah we're we're we're, we're gonna we're gonna argue then you need more time away from work you know these these these, these things are um, in, in our view are, are, are self-evident and they're, they're, they're basic but Unfortunately, you know, uh, I think over a period of time, trade unions have been unsuccessful in in, in making and, and achieving the demands that suggest that workers have some benefit from, from new technology. In terms of the monitoring, though, the new technology that does, does the excessive monitoring, I think the communication workers will continue to be resistant to it until somebody can uh, convince us that it's completely... And, and utterly necessary. Thank you. Uh, Shrey, I'm going to bring you in. I know that um, IPPR have also joined the calls for a shorter working week as part of the exit strategy of this COVID crisis. I mean, who knows when there's going to be an exit? Um, but I know that IPPR, TUC, you know, Autonomy, others have been have been you know, talking about a four-day week as a tried and tested unemployment strategy. Obviously, you know, the German Kurzarbeit scheme, but also their presence before that. And I'll let you answer or kind of speak to that, but also if you want to speak to Alice's question about automation, um, I know that IPPR also have been some of the best bits of IPR of IPR's research has been on automation. So, whatever you want to pick up on. <laughs> Thanks. Um, yeah, on automation, um, I was going to say a couple of things. So, I think as I mentioned before, um, automation can drive wealth inequality because we're everyone's sort of so precarious that even when a small change comes along, you can sort of lose your place in the economy and then it's you you're probably going to come back in a worse place but um wealth inequality can also affect automation because if you have this supply of very cheap um labor then businesses might be like well why bother investing in in automation when i can just hire workers at very cheap prices um i think that yeah the, the our economic model because it's so unequal um in some ways stops us from from moving towards a better more advanced economy because everyone's so precarious that everyone kind of resists um any change or like yeah adaptation towards different technologies um but i think that as people on the left we like the ideal i think is is a world where things are more automated and people have more time for leisure um so the four-day week is a step towards that and then i think uh the four-day week specifically as a response to coronavirus is about saying well um, you know, we know that demand is going to be less for the moment because um, certain sectors of the economy are just shut down for now. So let's try and share the work out more evenly between people. Um, I, yeah, I think in some sectors that will make sense. In other sectors, it, it will make less sense because the skills are such that it's difficult to bring new people in. But yeah, I, that yeah, it makes sense to me. Great. Yeah, I think, I mean, I guess there's also, we probably want to avoid those discussions of that talk about, okay, the economy's taking a big hit, therefore we can't have nice things or can't have many things at all. It's all, I guess, we want, we're talking about redistributive policies as well, right? Redistributing work, redistributing incomes. Um, I know that Alice has been looking at, you know, industries with huge concentrations of wealth and, and then earnings at the very top of the, and uh, the kind of the, the uh, like managerial executive kind of um, strata, and I think there's there's a, the arguments probably do need to be made that um, you can't be laying off workers and rehiring them while you're giving um, um, kind of you know shareholders um, you know huge huge earnings. So I think 
that's a discussion that probably needs to be to be had probably beyond discussion of this of this call uh, and i'll jump to another question here we have um is there does does working from home make this is from theodora again actually theodora is on fire the, uh, does working from home make union organizing more difficult does direct access to the workers and removing them from the workers the feeling of a workplace collectivity and decision making uh, is that that second one's a bit hard to follow um Basically, is it what does anyone have any thoughts on organizing in, in, in COVID? I know that Ian is the only speaker here from a trade union, but the question of collectivity and um, kind of connectivity, I suppose, as Alice was talking about, those small unions often are shifting organizing to to uh, WhatsApp and other networks. But question here of collectivity, which obviously traditionally way before COVID, much earlier in the 20th century, large sites of production are uh, the fertile grounds for organizing. Um, in COVID, a lot more workers from home are working from home. A lot more workers, perhaps, atomized. I wonder if anyone has any thoughts on that. Um, I'll I'll jump in again because <laughs> it does interest me. Like I I do think I think that idea of like you know we all used to share these massive workplaces, i.e. factories, and now we don't anymore. I I, I don't actually think that's true. Like loads of people still work in factories. Loads of people work in distribution centres. Um, so there is that kind of collectivity, like physical proximity to colleagues. However, I don't think that necessarily means kind of collectivity, and I don't think it's necessarily like necessarily an organic place for union organizing partly because of um some of the reasons i guess um others were talking about in the call about you know surveillance and monitoring um so you can all be together on one site but you're you're being monitored you're being watched you're being positioned in ways that you can't actually you know speak to each other come together your breaks are so short that you know there'd be no time to talk to one another um in in the kind of um in big distribution centers um, for example, it's quite common to have like a 12 hour shift with only two half hour breaks um, within that, that 12 hour shift. And that's that's completely legal. Um, so I'm not convinced that like physical proximity to colleagues is necessarily what you need for good organizing. And I do think that even though, you know, more of us are working from home now, I think we're better you know, connected than ever digitally. And I think um, that's a great place to start from. I do think, however, that you know there is something we're missing for, for people that, like me, who that you are where you are kind of working from home now as the norm, um, yeah, and other people kind of in office jobs that that might be doing the same that are now kind of working from their their bedrooms. I think you are missing a kind of social element um, that was probably very important to work for. Um, but again, I don't think that is completely insurmountable for, for organizing or well, I think we, we might we could move to a model where you have kind of more co-working spaces in your immediate area so you can kind of go in and be physically with other people working even if you're working for different employers and you have that sense of collectivity there um yeah that that would be something that that I think would be a kind of a cool outcome of, of the pandemic um but I also think it's important to remember that yeah for so many people working from home just hasn't been an option during the pandemic. Um, yeah. Uh, Ian, I wonder if you, I just on that, I wonder if you have any thoughts, particularly because I, I suppose um, the average postie's job, I, I guess I don't know, I always assume they're just on the beat, just doing kind of um, delivering uh, their mail. I don't know if there's, what, what, is there a sense of kind of collectivity within, amongst Royal Mail workers because of their site base? Is there kind of like a, a base camp that they kind of return to and that's where a lot of organizing gets done? Or is it actually, have you guys had to adapt with new kind of technologies, networking technologies for, for organizing? Um, 
just I just thought I'm interested in, in, in how that works. Yeah, so um, they they all have a base, whether that be first thing in the morning at a, a delivery office uh, and or at a sorting centre, mail centre, where they do the majority of, of their work. Uh, so there's two groups of workers, those that go out on the beat who start in a delivery office and those who do the, the mail sortation from a mail processing centre. Um, just just to the broader, broader question about connectivity and organising, um, I think uh, the strength of, of the communication workers union is is that we do have have these buildings and we have a representative on the ground in in every single unit. Uh, I'm I'm convinced of that. Uh, anybody who's ever seen our build up to any dispute with the employer, where we have a gate meeting day, usually uh, it, it gets some traction on social media. Uh, a gate meeting day where every site organises a meeting on, on the gate uh, to discuss the issues and, and any pending dispute. I think that's part of the strength of our union. Our ability to adapt to a changing world, by the way, is, is going to be key because things are, are going to change. People are more remote. People will become more remote as time as time goes on. There'll be less time in, in the workplace. Uh, and I think new technology as we've had to start using it during COVID, will, will become more prevalent. Uh, whether it will produce the same quality uh, as our ability to organise in our workplaces, and given we've got reps and every site, is, is something I'll, I'll, I'll need to assess later on and need to be convinced of. But as, as things stand, uh, my, my view is and my experience is having that ability to organise in the workplace has, has, has been a significant benefit to, 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 to the union I work with. Great, thanks Ian. Um, I'm going to apologise once again, Dan couldn't join us, mainly because of technical issues. Okay, so I'm going to ask one more question to everyone, um, but it's actually kind of splits into two. Um, it's about the future of work. On the one hand, what needs to happen in the immediate term, so literally in the next few weeks, months, furloughs ending, um, we've got a potentially a second wave, looks like a second wave's coming, second lockdown, so I want everyone to answer one, you know, just like what do they think immediately needs to change um, about the future of work to make it uh, more equitable and, um, you know, kind of, yeah, basically to make sure that like this, this time, this sec for the second wave, let's say, the crisis doesn't um, hit uh, those perhaps most vulnerable the hardest. So an immediate what should change and then a more utopian question. I think, you know, this is this is the World Transform Festival. We we do uh, try and bring a kind of bigger picture, bold vision to this. So so a, a bigger, more utopian uh, question of what should the future of work be? Uh, where are we trying to get to? And I'm going to try, I'm going to ask you to try and stay away from platitudes to try and get a, a, a few, a few, some details of that second question, please. So I'm going to start with um, Alice first, then we'll go Shreya and then end with Ian. No pressure, obviously. <laughs> um, so in terms of the immediate, I would say we need to extend the furlough scheme. We're um, mad at having this kind of cliff edge furlough scheme where um, clearly loads of employers are just going to um, sack people. Uh, when the scheme ends, there's this kind of £1,000 bonus that if an employer that's had someone furloughed um, keeps them employed until January, they can claim £1,000. I'm not convinced that's that's going to achieve much. Um, so, yeah, number one would be kind of extend the furlough scheme. Um, and then from from kind of individual perspective, 
join unions or even form unions um, in your workplaces if there isn't a union kind of operating already and um, get to work together with your colleagues and, and create one. Um, and then in terms of the future, I think, I mean, stuff that we've already touched on already. So I would argue uh, less time in work overall um, or less time in paid work, but also the recognition of a lot of the unpaid work that we do at the moment um, being, you know, ideally would be better recognised um, as a valuable contribution to the economy. So that's something we've not really talked about this evening, but um, so many people have kind of sucked up additional care work at home during the crisis, whether it's care of their children because the nurseries and schools have closed or or care of, of, of loved ones who are shielding. Um, and all of that work kind of uh, props up the rest of the economy. And I think we've got an opportunity now to really uh, acknowledge that and and uh, recognise it better in society and in the wages of, of care workers, but also kind of more broadly in the way we organise our, ourselves, our workplaces, um, you know, ensuring that kind of childcare is something that's embedded in the way we kind of live, live our lives and, and something that's free, affordable, or better, yeah, free and accessible to everyone. Um, so I think that are my two points. I maybe had one other. Oh, yeah, just this idea of kind of localised places of work. So if you don't want to just work from home, you could actually um, still get together with people in kind of localised work centres so that you work is a bit more integrated into your community and you're not having these like mad commutes to an out of town warehouse or to the centre of a, a city. Um, but actually you're able to work kind of closer to home if you want to, um, but still in a social way. So, yeah, they, they would be my three utopian things. Great, that, that did have detail. Um, okay, we'll go Shreya next, then Ian. Um, so, I yeah, I agree with everything that Alice said. And, well, yeah, also I think urgently we need more protection for unemployed people and, and people who are self-isolating um, and more protection for workers in workplaces. Um, and then in terms of the future, so as I said, I think the vision is of a a society where much more is automated um, and people yet yeah, people are able to do work that's more meaningful to them and aren't wasting their lives you know making loads of money um, and yeah it's probably a cop-out but I think if we rebalance wealth and power in the economy then that a lot of that will just fall out from that. Great okay and Ian um, we're going to give you the yeah, the uh, there's no pressure to have the final say on immediate what should change and then longer term thinking a bit more in a more utopian guise, um, the future of work. So I'm not good at utopia, but I'll, I'll start with the, the, um, the, the more immediate. I can't, I can't go anywhere further than disagree with that something's got to be done about extending furlough in, in, in the immediate term because that's 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 something that needs doing and. I think we probably do need to to there needs to be a strengthening in terms of the enforcement of COVID compliance in in the workplace. So something needs to be in place that enables uh, managers and management to be uh, held liable for non-compliance in a stronger, more structured way. Uh, in terms of of the future and a and and, and a. Some of the things I'd probably like to see, again, I'd have to repeat, better work-life balance, more time away from, from the workplace, 
Uh, I think that's that, that that's crucial. Um, a reversal of the race to the bottom, which is created by the the gig economy, uh, we, we, and and for us to get to that place, I just think we need to organise across sectors. So organising across sectors, so we start levelling people up, as opposed to this 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 race to the bottom that's promoted by by the by by the gig economy. And 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 I, and I think one of the things. That's been on my list for, for for a long time, but we've become so accustomed to them, we take them as the norm. And that's probably the reversal of some of the anti-trade union legislation, the immediate reversal. So it makes it easier for people to be represented and to organise themselves in the workplace. And, 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 and it's an fairer system. Great. That's yeah. What a, what a way. That's a that's a great final line to end on. I'm gonna. There's a few comments here just for other people. Um, Theodora killing it as usual. A new Lucas plan. Create workers and community plans for social and ecologically useful production and addressing the pre-existing multiple crises of militarization, climate change, and robotization. And Christopher Hall. Leisure and relaxation can be done from home. I work in the courts and we had half hour in half an hour in the afternoon where our legal advisors got together for a music quiz, meditation or yoga in our front rooms. So it can be done. Um, okay, I wanna say thanks to our speakers. I'm gonna plug Alice's book. She has a book coming out called Unions Renewed with Annie Quick. It looks really good. I've seen some like an early PDF copy. Um, I would definitely get that considering that one of our themes tonight has been you know, how unions need to be renewed, uh, how they're so important. And basically whether it's the immediate or long-term worker representation is gonna be crucial. Um, the final thing, I have a little blurb here. Before we finish, a number of events at TWT have been accompanied by radio plays related to the theme. This is going to be one of them. Uh, we'd like to thank Laura Bay for kindly providing her play. Food Bank does what it says on the tin. We chose this reason to highlight a long-standing and shameful feature of our society, food poverty, which has only increased during the pandemic. With an ongoing crisis in employment and many millions of jobs expected to be at risk, the issue is likely to, be to get worse still. The reading takes place at a food bank and explores an ordinary day of both volunteers and users, the attitudes commonly expressed about people rely on such services and the real struggles of those who are. If you want to listen, just click on the link that's being shared in the chat now uh, and start the audio once this event ends. Uh, just before we go, a few last announcements. Uh, to continue the discussions, we've set up a dedicated space on the community forum. If you've already set up your account, you can click this link. Uh, are, we, are, we, are we linking that now? Uh, if you're registered for the festival, check your email for your sign-up link to the forum. If you're unable to find a sign-up link, please email info at the World Transformed. Um, also remember that loads of events at TWT are filling up very quickly, so be sure to register for any that you'd like to attend. I think we're, half, we're halfway through now, so there's about two weeks two weeks in. So make sure you've registered for the festival uh, and go to the individual event. If you've enjoyed the session, would like to help sustain their work, and I would recommend becoming a, um, a supporter go to the website worldtransform.org forward slash support. I'm a supporter. I think everyone should be. Anyone who cares about good political events should be a supporter of the World Transformed. It's definitely the best event organization in the country. Um, all the links are now in the chat. Uh, apologies again for Dan Card not making it. I hope you enjoyed the session um, and I'll see you at another one soon. Cheers. View the full TWT20 program and become a supporter today to help us deliver political education all year round at theworldtransformed.org.